the box is created for a reason. That reason is not to spend your whole life there. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sassen behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Scott Kuhn. Scott is an athletic performance coach and coordinator of data science at Williams & Mary. We've had his brother on and boss slash co-worker and mentor, as he talks about a lot on this podcast, Eric Corm on the podcast before as well. So we just kept the train rolling with Scott, and it was a really awesome podcast where we, we kind of dove into a deep rabbit hole of data science and how we can bring together sports performance coaches with sports scientists and breaking down the language barrier that happens between them to get the information to our coaches to keep the goal to goal to move us forward. I hope you guys get a lot out of this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. All right, well, Coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast today. I'm super excited for you to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Really excited to do this as well. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your, your background and how you got into the world of sports performance and how you got kind of into the role you're at today? So uh, my background in sports performance actually started back in middle school, which is probably a little bit earlier than most people tend to get into strength and conditioning. But initially, my, my career path, and this was very heavily swayed by uh, the show CSI, was I wanted to be a forensic investigator. And uh, then I got into you know, more heavily into athletics. And it's funny because my sister was actually already going to this private sector facility. At the time, it was called uh, Frappier Acceleration. And my dad was like, well, you should go um, and try it out. And so I went and tried it out and very instantly got hooked. And then they underwent a change of um, leadership and brought in these more, I guess you could say, football-oriented type guys that the workouts were intense but intelligent. And that's when it started to really click for me that how cool it is that there's a science to making better athletes. And so from middle school on, I was very heavily... Um, inquisitive of the coaches that I worked with, just wanting to know the why behind everything that we did. And that carried me into uh, my high school years. I had a pretty successful high school career. And um, that afforded me the opportunity to go to Illinois State as a a walk-on wide receiver. And from there, that was uh, one of the big formative experiences, I think, that's really heavily shaped. You know, you you have the, the second bullet point talking about like why behind who I am. Um, and I think that was a very heavily influential experience for me uh, and what I was able to experience there. So I was a walk-on that um, became a scholarship athlete, played in 30 career games, and then had the opportunity to play for uh, an FCS national championship in my last year. And unfortunately, we lost that game. Um, watched Carson Wentz go down the field with a minute 30 left in the game to to beat us in what's been the, the closest uh, FCS national championship in the last decade. So if you're, you're going to lose a national championship, I guess that's a way to do it. Yeah, that's a pretty good um, player to go against, huh? Yeah, no kidding. And let me tell you, he's as big in person as he's listed. Like, I was standing next to him for, like, one of the uh, – at a bunch of events throughout the, um, the days leading up to the championship. And we were doing, like, it was like a Special Olympics-type deal, helping uh, kids play flag football. And I'm standing next to him, and I'm just like, good Lord. And it, that was his first year playing, too. And it was just like – the guy before him was really, really good. And then there's this guy that's a junior that's been waiting in the wings. And – he does what he does now. So flash forward, uh, finished up. And then I did the, uh, I went through the process of training for a pro day. I thought in part, you know, I want to see that door close on me rather than wonder what if. And I also wanted to go through that process because I knew it'd be something that I would be doing as a practitioner when I got into coaching more formally. 
didn't pan out, obviously. Uh, so I had to go find a job. And luckily, the high school five minutes down the road from my house was looking for a head strength and conditioning coach. And so I immediately got thrown into the fire of being a high school head strength and conditioning coach for about a 200 player football program, which was a whole lot of fun. I, I always tell people it was like the, the purest experience because that's, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I, I had good fundamental principles in place, but truly didn't grasp the, the scope of what it is that we're trying to do as practitioners. But because I had just finished playing, just played for a national championship, I could have told the kids to run into a brick wall to make themselves better football players. And they all would have done it. No hesitation. And uh, so I went through that experience through uh, my first summer after I graduated. And then I actually saw that um, there was a presentation out at uh, Richmond, Virginia, the CVAPS presentation. And so to, to pull back a little bit further, in 2012, when I was uh, still playing, I admittedly, I, I started to wonder what else was out there um, as far as strength and conditioning goes for, for the collegiate realm. Because I really, initially, I thought I was going to go private sector uh, and just work in sports performance. But then as I got to the collegiate sector, I realized, you know, you can do this and you can have a huge group of people that are aligned and working towards the same goals. Whereas if you're in the private sector, you may have a 10 year old football player, a 17 year old soccer player, an eight year old gymnast, and you're having to like make sure that the eight year old gymnast isn't climbing on something and about to jump off it. And so it's really hard to align and just feel a, a higher purpose, if you will, when you're trying to manage all these different groups and, and athletes of different backgrounds. And so I really enjoyed the intangible aspects and the, the cultural aspects of being in the collegiate sector. And so when I got to college and realized that that was a, a career path, that's when I, I really started to become attuned to the opportunity that it is. And, um, you know, love my strength coach from college to death. He's an awesome person, but I just, I think there were a lot of antiquated methods that we were being put through. And I think whether or not you have a mind for exercise science, athletes are very intuitive people. And I think they know when things feel right or don't feel right from a, a training perspective. And with my background, I knew that the way we were training didn't necessarily align with what we needed to do to be ready to play football. And so I started looking elsewhere to see what was out there, like what other schools were doing. And in 2012, I stumbled on a video of Eric Corum talking about what they were doing at Kentucky with the high performance model. And it was one of those light bulb moments where I was like, this just makes a lot of sense to look at it from the holistic mindset and trying to synchronize all these different coactives that are acting on the same athletes. And it was just, that stuck with me. And so I started going down the, the James Smith rabbit holes. At the time he was putting out articles on elite FTS and he was talking about um, some of the fallacies around the way sport practices are designed, the way conditioning is done. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that's become his books, the, especially the governing dynamics. And so Flash forward again to 2015 when I'm working at the high school, I see Eric is speaking at CVAPS. And I was like, I need to go hear him speak and just see what it's about and who knows what could happen. So I had to beg and borrow my parents to help me fund a flight because I was still a broke post-college student and got myself out there, knew nobody there. And um, what ended up being pretty cool about it was I was roommates with Anthony Paroli, who is now the head training and conditioning coach for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And at the time he was Buddy Morris's intern. And conveniently because of that tree, had the opportunity after Eric spoke the Friday night 
to sit down at the same social table with him and just kind of listen to them talk. And so picture me as, what would I have been, 22, 23 years old, barely gotten my my feet wet as a a strength and conditioning coach, listening to these super high-level coaches talk. And so we're sitting there reading, and then Eric has to get up and leave. He's got another uh, deal to go to uh, for the next day. And he gets up and leaves, and I'm like, I would be remiss not to go and say something. And so I go follow him as he's leaving, tap him on the shoulder. And he says it to this day and I'll fully verify it. Like I probably looked like a stalker because I was, there was a little bit of starstruckness to the meeting somebody that I had been following their work since I was a sophomore in college and managed to sputter out and say, coach, I really love what you're doing at Kentucky and I'd love to come be a part of it if you have an opportunity. And so he gave me his email and said, send me your details. And so of course I ran back to my room and fired off my resume and cover letter real, real quick. And then, uh, two days later I heard back from him and he said, would you like to come down to Lexington for the fall? Of course I was like, hell yeah, let's go. And so two and a half weeks later, I moved to Lexington, Kentucky to, uh, take on my first internship. And that was the, so if you can picture the, the Dunning-Kruger effects graph where you kind of get to that, that peak of like, very limited experience, but you feel like you have a strong competency. The internship at Kentucky was a swift plummet to the bottom of realizing how much I didn't know and how many levels there were to the way that uh, stranding and conditioning can be done. And it was an awesome experience because I I was working in a a dual capacity for Eric on the high performance side of things. So I was managing a lot of the day-to-day data collection and then helping him do, he was in charge of the specialized training for the kickers and quarterbacks. So I got to do a lot of that. But then I also worked as a strength coach because I had my CSCS. So I was able to take racks of athletes and coach them. And so I got my feet, um, went into coaching SEC uh, collegiate football players, which was, again, they are, they were a tremendous group of guys, but obviously you deal with the personalities that come with that caliber of athlete. And so learning how to manage those guys and work with those guys and coach them well um, was a, a tremendous first experience. And so it really it gave me something to aspire to eventually getting to the level of being able to work in that environment. And so internship finished up. Um, good side story to that was I got to see Lamar Jackson's first ever college game from the sidelines where we were up 21, nothing. And mind you, Louisville, Kentucky's big rivalry game, and we needed to win it to go to a bowl game. And we go up 21, nothing. Our third score was a 85 yard pick six. Our linebacker chucked the ball into the second level of the stands, gave us a penalty on the next uh, ensuing kickoff. And so they started to like the 50 and they sub out their former starting quarterback and bring in this true freshman named Lamar Jackson, who proceeds to torch us for 42 points. We just had no answer. Um, and we lost the game 42 21. And so that, that's my uh, claim to fame for my time at Kentucky was seeing Lamar Jackson, the very first collegiate game uh, from the sidelines. So move on from there, I head back home and begin the process of applying for graduate assistant positions. And in between that, I started working in a part-time capacity at the facility that I grew up training at, which is called Acceleration Sports Performance. Uh, And again, just the same routine everybody has gone through of just chucking out as soon as something pops up on Football Scoop or the CSCCA website, chuck out an application and, and cross your fingers and hope for the best. And I think I ended up applying for a total of 18 positions and until the 18th one, the furthest I had gotten was, um, a phone call interview. And so I was just, of course, going through that, that struggle of, man, how am I going to get my start? Um, 
and just hoping for something to happen. And then finally, uh, again, my 18th application was to the University of Tulsa. And I had some, some connections that, that afforded me the opportunity to get my foot in the door. And then I guess I did well enough on the interviews or tricked them on the interviews well enough to offer me a position. And so moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which as a sidebar, I will tell you is one of the coolest cities uh, I've ever been to just size and, you know, people not expecting you to say that about Tulsa. Uh, I think it's one of the coolest places I've ever been. Just a super big melting pot of kind of all the different regions of the country. And now they might end up getting the Tesla uh, headquarters, which would be an awesome boost for them. Like, I really think that if that happens and then the way the city was growing already, um, I think it'll end up being a major, major metropolis in the country within the next 15 years. But so got my master's degree done there, had some really cool experiences, got to be, um, I worked with football and women's tennis there. And then in my last year with softball and I trained our pro day class there. And on the, the football side of things, I got to see our offense that in 2016 made their way into the college football hall of fame because we had a 3000 yard quarterback two 1,000-yard receivers and two 1,000-yard running backs. So it was just a super high-caliber offense, and we won a lot. And we finished our uh, season playing in the Miami Beach Bowl, which was a fun way to cap that experience. Um, so then moving forward, I finished up my master's degree there. Again, just ticking that box for the future HR purposes of trying to get jobs and um, had started the process again of seeing what was out there and pulling on connections to see who may have full-time opportunities. And in I think it was April or March of 2018, I, Eric had posted that he had gotten the role he has now at William and Mary. And so I reached out and texted him and just said, Hey, congratulations. Uh, wish you the best of luck with it. And he responded back and said, thanks. Really excited about it. Um, stay in touch. Cause it, there may be an opportunity for you down the line here. Flash forward two months. And, uh, I reached out to him about a role that I had a feeling he may know the person who, uh, was the head strength coach at that role. Uh, and so I reached out to him and he came back to me and said, yeah, here are the details of it. I could give you a recommendation for it, but I'm also going to have a position open here at William and Mary. Would you be interested? And of course I'm like chance to work with Eric again, it would be tremendous. And so, um, now I'm here and I've been at William and Mary since August, 2018, working a dual role of being an athletics performance coach. Uh, initially I had six teams. So I had lacrosse, men's and women's or yeah, men's and women's tennis, men's and women's cross country and women's gymnastics when I first got there. And then we underwent a uh, departmental leadership change. And now I'm first assistant with football, uh, still over women's lacrosse and then uh, women's soccer. And for the time being, I have men's soccer, but we are in the process of hopefully hiring another assistant when all of the pandemic stuff dies down because we were right in the midst of finalizing that position. And then they put us in a hiring freeze. So uh, for now I have both soccers and we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. I think that's, I, I, I love your whole process of the journey because I think it ties back to at the end of the day, it, like where you're at now all comes down to the decision that you were, you wanted to go see Eric talk at that conference. And I, I received a text this morning, um, basically a, a young coach, like asking what I should do next. Like he was trying to map everything out. And l like my answer to a lot of these things is exactly what you did is like, you have to go do something like you, you have to take advantage of an opportunity. You have to make an opportunity happen. And at the end of the day, if you hadn't made that trip, if you haven't gone out to that conference and it's not with the expectations that five years down the road, it's going to lead to a job, but at least you put yourself in a situation to create an opportunity, you know, like you stepped up to the plate to at least swing at the ball rather than sitting in the dugout, looking at people striking out or hitting home runs. 
Yeah. And admittedly, I was pissing down my leg the whole time thinking about like going to talk to him about this. And, and now it's like super funny. And we still like crack jokes about it to this day because now our relationships, like, you know, it's obviously a very much a, a mentorship type relationship, but he's a great friend of mine, like very close with his uh, family. And he even, you know, he had me over for dinner for Thanksgiving when I was at Kentucky because I didn't have anywhere to go. So like, you know, we, we have a very great relationship that, that resulted. And, you know, to the, the point of the text you got this morning, it's, it's not that it's just who you know, because you have to know something too. And so like when Eric was reaching out to me about the role here at William & Mary, um, I had been doing data work and uh, analysis and visualization at Tulsa. So as soon as he told me about the role and what it would entail, I sent him back some samples of stuff that I had done at Tulsa. So I, I had a, some of the, you know, what I know as well with it. And uh, very fortunately, I found the right person to uh, go after as far as, you know, where they're at in the field and, and what they know and what they hold to be true. And it, that one person is the, the catalyst for my internship, the GA position I got because he was uh, the person who recommended me for it. And then now for my first full-time role. Yeah. And that's, uh, I love the point you're talking about, like how you were starstruck and like pissing down your leg when you went to go talk to him, because that's like 90% of these interviews that I have on this podcast is like, I reached out to a, a coach that I say like camp Cameron yesterday. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a guy I've looked up to for eight years. And I got him on the podcast when he popped up is the same exact thing. But once you get over that fear a little bit, like you start to realize they're just humans and you're able to have a conversation with them and build that relationship. But it's the, it's almost that first step of, getting over that like starstruck feeling of, Oh my gosh, that's that guy. Oh yeah. And like, it, it's, it, yeah, totally to, to what you said. And once you, you get over it and you, you let yourself relax a little bit more into that conversation, that's where they can really begin to see who you are and get a good feel for who you are. And obviously once I you know was down at the internship and then kind of settled into my day to day and was able to be more myself, Eric was able to see that I was a little bit more than the you know, nervous stalker kid from the, the CVAPS conference. And that's, you know, where he remembered the way that I had worked and the stuff I had gotten done. Cause I was initially, I came in with a crew of two other interns there. And then one left because apparently he didn't realize that being an intern would entail taking uh, hydration piss tests every day. And like thought that because he had other internship experiences, he wouldn't have to do the same intern grunt work. And then the other guy got a paid internship opportunity at North Dakota state which obviously made sense to leave for. Um, and then they had another, he was a current student at the university of Kentucky at the time that he would volunteer in like a part-time capacity when he didn't have classes or schoolwork to do. So I was effectively the, the only intern, um, to do all the day to day, which we took uh, hydration tests every single day. So that was a hundred guys with their P samples, um, getting them to do their wellness survey every single day weekly RSI testing, omega wave testing for the guys. We had like 30 or 40 guys who were on that assisting and distributing catapult units, taking RPEs after uh, all their sessions. So I, I handled the vast majority of that on a day-to-day -day basis. And he saw that I could handle those simple tasks. And I think that's where, you know, demonstrating an ability to handle the simple tasks and do them the way that they're expected to be done and do it that way every single time uh, is where, you know, he was able to extrapolate that, with time and with mentorship and, and grooming, I could develop into a, a more competent coach. And that's where we're at now. Yeah. And that's almost like you, you have to gain trust in the small, like small tasks before you just get thrown into like a big task. It seems like our, our football coach says it all the time. Like, I'm not going to throw you in on fourth and one if I can't trust you on first and 10. Absolutely. 
Um, something I want to, I want to pivot the conversation a little bit into diving a little bit deeper into that, that data science that you talked about. And that's something that it's, it's up and coming in the strength world and more people are talking about it in sports performance world and what we're doing with it. But it's still not like every single school is doing it. Every single high school has access to these things. Like, can you talk about a little bit what you're doing with it, where you kind of see this field going and why it's so important? Yeah. So coming into William & Mary, my role was a brand new role for the uh, department. So it was something that Eric had created and and deemed to be important. And so my task was effectively to get the department off the ground. And this was a much bigger step than I had anticipated it to be because what I was doing at Tulsa was merely generating reports that we as a strength staff would look at, but it wasn't being used by sport coaches or being looked at with a very high level of critique. And now I go to working for somebody that's been director of sports science for the Houston Texans and been a high performance director for an SEC school. And I've got to get this department off the ground and running um, with, you know, obviously his guidance, but he's got a million other things he's working on as an athletic director. Uh, fortunately, I had Kier, uh to be able to mentor me as well and, and help me uh, get some footing in how we needed to go about this. But so it initially started, uh, like every strength coach does, with a lot of stuff in Excel. And it was, you know, let, let's track simple things. So Eric had a wellness algorithm that he developed at the Texans. Um, so we had to be able to integrate that with your typical training load metrics. So acute chronic ratios, monotony, strain, and how we could get that information to... Because at the time, Eric was working with our men's basketball team. Like he was their strength coach. And so he would text me during the day and say... Hey, what's uh, this guy's wellness? You know, what's the team's wellness score so I can report it to the coach? I'd have to go into Excel, make sure the algorithm ran, report back to him, and then it'd be, well, this guy didn't do his survey. Can you text him? He'd text him and say, okay, can you do it now? So then it, there was just this huge back and forth, and it was really a huge bottleneck to being able to rapidly disseminate information to all the relevant stakeholders. And so that's where what I guess I kind of you know, struck a claim in, um, with building out a dashboard through Google sheets. So that's where that started to come to life was, you know, it's a cloud-based platform and you can give people access to it and data can upload real time. And so built out the initial simple, it was super simple, looks really, really bare bones compared to what I can build now, but it just reported each guy's acute chronic ratio, their wellness score. And then I think I had a graph for the daily loads and how they were distributed and like a a stacked column graph and then an acute chronic line graph as well. And it made it far easier because Eric could go in, he could look at the dashboard and he didn't have to text me anymore. So it just, it eliminated a huge bottleneck to getting the information that he needed. Cause now if a guy's survey wasn't done, he could see that and just text them versus having to text me, get the scores and then move forward from there. So what that evolved into was an experiment, if you will, uh, with my women's lacrosse team. So I took the concept of what I had built for basketball and my winter break project in winter 2018-2019 was to build out a more full-scale dashboard. And because we were, women's lacrosse was the other program that was going to roll out the full-scale high-performance model. So it was men's basketball and it was women's lacrosse. And I was the head of performance for women's lacrosse. So said, you know what, I'm going to use them as kind of my, my guinea pig just to see how it can run. And I got a little bit more savvy with Google Sheets. There, there is a bit of a, a learning curve to Google Sheets. It's very similar to Excel, but there's enough nuance to it that 
you have some initial frustrations, but then you get over them and it's very, very compatible and quick to pick up if you have an Excel background. But so, uh, was running my experiment, if you will, with them during their end season. And one of the days in January, Eric had walked in and he saw the dashboard pulled up and it's a lot shinier, if you will, has a lot more metrics, looks far more cleaned up. And, you know, his eyes light up and he says to me, he's like, when am I getting that for basketball? And so that was kind of the, the beginning of, okay, let's start to build this out for more teams. And so we move forward to the summer and we are getting ready to roll out our acclimatization policy. So it becomes very pertinent for all teams to have the ability to track workloads and um, track wellness with that, just to monitor the response that the athletes are having to what's being imposed on them. And so I figured out how to build a very duplicable model or template, if you will, that copy and paste. And, you know, I could do that for each uh, program within our athletic department and they have a full scale dashboard that with a little bit of tinkering on the front end, just to, there's one, one formula that needs to be adjusted and then just entering the athletes names. They now have a dashboard that runs automatically and they just need to be educated on how to use it and how it runs, um, to keep it current. But it's to the point that it's effectively for an average team size. So let's say like 20 to 30 athletes, it's about one to two minutes a day of data entry to keep it current. And so that's really what I, I sought to do when I, I built this out was make it, um, make it easy for anybody to use. I, I think one of the issues you run into with Excel uh, or Google Sheets platforms is they're built specifically by somebody and that person always understands how it works. But if you give it to somebody else, they, they can struggle because they don't know the in, inner workings of whatever you built. So the goal was to figure out how can I, you know, with a little education on the front end, how can I make something that's very easy for somebody to run without me having to do it for them? And that's what we've arrived at. And now, especially with what we're dealing with with the pandemic uh, and then the, the revamping we've done of our acclimatization policies to better get athletes back into their sports, depending on, you know, what time of year their season is it's going to be uh, mandated for all of our sports and teams to use the dashboard uh, that's been, that's going to be created for them. And then we've, we've retooled it a bit more to provide more feedback and guidance on how they're adhering to the policies that we're going to roll out for them. And so it's going to become a really, really critical piece of the day-to-day operation of every single one of our sports teams. And so it's really, you know, we're not, we have GPS with football, we have GPS with women's lacrosse, and we've been able to do some, some surface level dives with that. And then we actually, Last year, we got into a contractual agreement with our computer science department on campus, and they are the girl who was leading on it has worked uh, in Formula Formula One racing analytics. She's done a couple other studies around uh, sports science, and so we let her get full access to our our data. And initially, uh, just because she needed some guidance because she wasn't as versed in field sports, you know, she asked me for some examples of what kind of questions people look to answer with research, and I said, well, you know. In lacrosse, there's not really been a, to my knowledge, a piece of literature put out on what typical uh, game demands are for lacrosse. So just giving people a starting point to say, hey, here's what it takes from a mechanical perspective to play a lacrosse game. So I gave her some example papers on that and then didn't hear from her for a couple of months on the project. And then flash forward a few more months and all of a sudden she's coming back from, she had our GPS data and then she had our game stats and 
pretty much everything from a stat standpoint that went into our, our season in 2019. And she comes back and says they found a, a model that basically validated our high low periodization model as it pertains to the tactical plan. So they were able to discover that what she did was she created a game grade based off of team stats. So it zero to 100% score for how we played in the game. And so it was based off of goals and goals allowed. And then ranking differential were given those three metrics were given more weight than the other variables. Because obviously if you score more goals than the other team, your likelihood of winning is probably going to go up. Um, and then it also took into account shots and shots allowed turnovers and cause turnovers, and then time between games to so turnaround time. And created a zero to 100% score off of that, that could summarize how we played, uh, in a game. And so that was the first piece of the, the puzzle. And then the second part, then the part that was really actionable for us was that she, through uh, the creation of neural networks of our data was able to, like I said, validate the high, low periodization model uh, of how we approached the, the practice planning for lacrosse. And I, I was very fortunate to work with a awesome group of coaches that, I was directing the tactical plan of, you know, how long we practice, how intense it should be, and then other constraints that help kind of shape the practice environment to be a harder day or an easier day. And we basically found that when hard days were hard and easy days were easy, it improved the game grade. So conversely, if the days drifted more towards medium when they weren't supposed to be, uh, the game grade decreased accordingly. And then we found off of that that if we achieved a game grade of 80%, our likelihood of winning was 80%. And so it has huge predictive value and it, it basically validates. And to me, what's so cool about it is you're strictly looking at the mechanical demands imposed to the athletes in practices leading up to games. But from the way that you manipulate those variables, you're deriving a better outcome on ultimately the, the game grade that, you know, those stats are going to matter most to a, a sport coach. Like they may not care about, total distance, high speed distance, distance per minute, what have you, they do care about how many goals they score and how many shots they take and how many turnovers they have or cause. Um, so it, it provides a very easy segue into a conversation to say, coach, when we do these things in practice and when we achieve these kind of targets or thresholds for these different practice types, it results in better outcomes for the things that you care most about. And so it was like this huge light bulb moment. And it was just like, wow, like, Obviously, we, we know the value of the high-low or the, the polarized approach, but that's not always something that's intuitive to a sport coach. And so to be able to have this data to back up the way that we approached women's lacrosse was, was phenomenal. And this research is going to be published here pretty soon. I'm sure all the pandemic threw a, a wrench into it. Um, but I spoke to her like a month ago just because she needed some final touches with the, the paper. But I think it'll be a really cool paper to have out in the profession to demonstrate, Hey, the way that you practice has an effect on what manifests on the field of play, uh, whenever your game day is. So we have people that can do the, the deeper analysis like that. We did something similar with, uh, basketball where we looked at their Omega wave scores, specifically their DC potential and how that related to shooting percentage. And, you know, if, if you're versed in the, the research that Sherry Ma did at Stanford, we, you know, basically found, and then you tie that into Eric's research as well with uh, sleep's effect on DC potential. Uh, and then what Sherry Ma did, looking at sleep and the outcomes on uh, KPIs of the sport with sprint speed and then shooting percentage. And we found that there was predictive value in, you know, the DC potential of the athletes on game day and what their shooting percentage was. So 
we've got people in the wings that can do some really, really deep dive analytics for us. My role really is keeping the, the day to day just because I'm still a coach and I always tell people like I'm a coach at heart and that's first and foremost, my job is to, to not get lost behind the laptop. Um, but you know, so my surface level job is just to keep the day to day running and help people with dashboards and the collection and the analysis and the visualization of data, turning out reports for, you know, whatever we may be looking at. And then we've got people that can spend more time doing really, really deep dives for us to derive information like we, we have now out of uh, lacrosse's GPS data. So that's the very long overview of what my role is in data science. I'll tell you first and foremost, I'm not the best data scientist by any means. Um, what, what I do think my strength is, is the ability to take data and at least at a surface level, make it very presentable and digestible for sport coaches to understand what's going on. Um, and so obviously the, the, the goal each semester is just to build out and expand upon what we're doing in some way. And obviously with the, the pandemic throwing a wrench into things, my, my role with how we revamp the dashboard and how we make it, again, still very easily digestible by, by sport coaches and, and usable for people who may not necessarily uh, understand Google Sheets as well. Um, but at least with some education, we can get them up to speed and then have them running it. Um, that's really where we're expanding right now. And then just making sure that we safely reintegrate kids into sport when we get back. Yeah. And it, like you mentioned, like that you, you're the, almost the translator of this information. Uh, you, you see, this is where I see the biggest disconnect is you have, you have the sports scientist and then you have the sports like performance coach and they both at the end of the day, their goal should be to win on the field. But a lot of times you, you have these two huge silos of sports scientists has all this information, all these data points, um, sports performance coaches seeing their athletes every day and actually working with the athletes and trying to make changes. And there it's almost like they speak two different languages that aren't able to come together. That's not able to make it digestible. And then again, these two silos either pull the team apart or you're just not able to find the gray area in between these two things that allow you to make sense of this data that allow you to, like, like you, like you mentioned with the coach, like the, the coach is not going to care about any of these, these metrics or these data points that you give them. You just throw them out these data points. I guarantee any sports coach out there is going to be like, I, I, I don't care. Like I'm, I'm, we got practice today. I got a 24 period practice. I'm going to plan out. Yeah. You show them, you show them the shooting percentage. You show them, Hey, this results in a win or a loss. Then their eyes are open up. They're like, okay, now this is going to be emphasis. And Cameron mentioned yesterday that like the head coach is the one at the end of the day that steers the ship. So if you can get them to steer the ship in the direction that you know is right for the team, using this data, being the translator that you are, like that, that's so powerful to have an influence on your team to, to win and not just have it just be the, the weights. And that's exactly what it is. And I, I think one of the, the cool moments that we had with football last year, so I had to build out a dashboard to show all 100 football players, which is a massive file. And that's why Kira and I are both going down the, the R rabbit hole right now is because that, that file slowed down heavily when you're taking in 100 to 200 data points a day on these kids. But it was the cool moment was when we have this dashboard up and we, we use stoplight coding for both of our metrics, just like everybody tends to do because it's very universally understood. And we're in probably day six or seven of camp. And of course, that's when you're starting to see some more yellows and reds pop up on guys as acute chronics and guys as wellness. And the, the story that started to unfold and the story that our head coach pointed out himself without any prodding, he was like, you know, the guys that weren't here for summer workouts are the ones who are showing up red and yellow. And they're the same guys that are on the injury report with nicks and bumps and bruises. And 
the light bulb that clicked or switched on for him was uh, we had some funding issues and we couldn't pay for all of our guys to be down on campus for workouts. And so light bulb that clicked for him was, you know, if we want to perform better and have guys available to practice, we need to be able to have them there for the summer. And he said, this data helps us to tell that story. And we were sitting in this meeting and, and here Eric and I are looking at each other just like, whoa, like talk about, you know, usually you're having to lead the coach to the water and then hope like hell they drink it. He led himself to the water and drank everything out of that river. And it was just like, awesome. And now he's, he's fully on board with everything that we do. And he checks the, the dashboard. Obviously we can't run it right now, but the dashboard gets pulled up in their, their team or their um, person or their staff meetings every single day. And it, we were there for, here's there for all of them. I'm there for some of them. But then we talk about any key points, but then all the position coaches will look and you, it's, it's funny to see how it's evolved because you know, coaches will look and they'll see if it's great. It means the guy hasn't done their survey and you see a coach pick up his phone and he's texting his guys to say, do your survey. And the cool thing about how the dashboard is set up is that there's a script that intakes the form and automatically runs the wellness algorithm. So you see it update real time. So it looks like we have an actual app, if you will, but really it's just a fancy Excel sheet, but the, the coaches love it. And it's allowed us to have the conversations that we all want to be able to have. Why isn't this guy doing well? Well, coach, here's some things to consider, um, you know, why he may be struggling and here's some ways that we can be actionable about it. And so it's, you know, to where we're at now from where we started, it, it's been incredible to see. And we, we've seen great results. We won more games than we did uh, the previous year. Our injury rate, the first two spring. So we had spring practice early this year, which made us nervous, of course, because, you know, guys are coming off break. You only get two weeks to train them and then you jump right into spring football. And so we were, of course, nervous that we were going to see an uptick in injuries. Uh, but our coach listened to the, you know, recommendations that were made to him about, look, they've only had two weeks to train. We, we've got to start a little bit less right now. And then we can build gradually throughout the spring. And even with spring ball being uh, earlier than it was the previous year, we had a 55% injury reduction the first spring where we really didn't have much cohesion in the way we were operating. And then we still have 45% reduction in injuries this past spring. And that was again with spring ball being two weeks into the semester. And so you're starting to see some of the outcomes that are desirable for us to move the program forward. Because if guys are more available, that means they can practice more, which means they can get better at their sport, which means hopefully we win more down the line. And what's so, your, we, we talked about the communication with the coaches, which is obviously the biggest step, but how do you, how are you going about this communicating with your own athletes? Let's say you have an athlete that pops up as red that day. Uh, how are you going about the process of, is it the like, Hey, why are you read? Like, why, why are we so beat up here? Or is it, does it depend? I, obviously it depends on the person, but what's kind of your process of going about it with the individual athlete and diving into that rabbit hole with them? I try to go into those conversations a little bit more non-directive, if you will. So I don't want to come right out and say, Hey, you're red because they may be fine. And they just don't necessarily realize that the way they answer today is way worse than how they normally answer. So I try to be very non-directive and just say, Hey, how are you doing today? Um, and then start to probe from there. Cause typically when you're seeing a kid that's red, it, most of the time it's, they stayed up late studying for tests and they didn't get a lot of sleep it, is what typically the conversation ends up becoming. Again, the psychology of it trumps all like they could have gotten an A on their test that morning. They could have talked to the cute girl in class and mom could have dropped a hundred bucks in their, their bank account. And even though they answered red when they woke up, that's turned their mood around and their psychology is better. And so if I go into it saying, Hey, why are you red today? That could completely flip their psychology and make them, 
I guess, more or bring their awareness back of how they felt when they initially woke up. So I try to be non-directive initially and just probe. And then from there, kind of dive into where we need to take the conversation. If it's a nutritional piece, they didn't eat. And so they feel terrible. Uh, they're not sleeping well. Some strategies for them to, to focus on. Uh, and then we go from there. And again, that just, like you said, just opens up the door to get them that information that they need. I, I'm interested in how you, do you make individual adjustments then off of you're, you're talking to that athlete. And again, this is, it's easy to do in the private sector when maybe you have like four or five kids and you see a kid beat up and it's, it's like, all right, we're going to cut you today. Like we're going to make this an easy day, but we got, we got a football team running in, or you got the offense running in on a football team and you got 60 athletes at one time coming into a weight room. What's, what's kind of the process of working with that athlete that is beat up on the day when you, when you probed, you're like, Oh, this athlete isn't feeling very great. Like, is there, is there separate programs? Is it just, we're working at working it out with that individual athlete. What's kind of the process there? I think that's where we get into the art of being a coach a little bit more. You know, we have guys that'll show up and they'll be red, but they'll still want to train. And so again, do we want to dig them deeper by saying, no, you're not doing anything today. Or can we shape the environment for them a little bit more to say, Hey, here are some things we can do instead. So they still feel like they, did a workout while obviously respecting the fact that the way that they're feeling and the way that they've shown to be feeling is not optimal for them to necessarily dig a hole deeper for that day. So a lot of it, and bearing in mind that we work with 18 to 22 year olds that, you know, we are reminding them to do their survey as they're walking in the doors five minutes prior to a session. So it's between Kira and I are the only two that work with football. So it's really, really difficult to remind them to do the survey. And then we've got to go check what their score is and then try and, you know, make sure the session's ready to roll and figure out adjustments for kids. So I think that's one area that we, we want to find a way to improve upon is how can we get the information earlier so that we can act on it quicker. And I think a lot of that just boils down to improving our human resources and getting a few more bodies on the ground to be able, you know, if we can have an extra coach that's just checking for surveys and then giving us a list of who's red, who's yellow, and we can kind of, you know, probe those conversations and make adjustments from there. But uh, we're largely constrained by the fact that Kira and I are the only two that work with football. And the, the biggest priority is to make sure the session's ready to roll and that we've got um, all the guys aligned, what they need to do for the day, uh, and everything's in working order. So we're not going to crush ourselves trying to make the data side of it you know, as integrated as possible if, we can, if we're not, first and foremost, running the session properly. So... I think we've got our priorities in the right order with that, but it is something that looking forward, we, we do want to get better with it and make so that we can be more actionable with that data to adjust guys and, and make that adjustment earlier than two minutes into the session. No, I, I love that. I love that approach. It's you're using it as a, as a tool, not like the focusing on it so much to where you're not able to get some work done, which is, I think, you'll hear, uh, you'll see a lot of sports scientists talk about this and just talk about this perfect thing that you could do. But again, I, th I always bring it back to like, if once again, you have 60 athletes come in, you have two coaches, like at the end of the day, you have to coach at the end of the day, you have to have this program. Like not everything's going to be perfect. I love that you mentioned, like, this is a tool that we're going to use, but we're not going to screw up our whole session. We're not going to make every, all the 60 athletes wait or just do something that's unrealistic and not get what we need to get done that day. Absolutely. And I, I see that like, the way you said it as well is like, it's assisting in the, the process of decision-making. And that's the, the biggest piece for me as well is it's using data to 
influence decision-making, not make it because this kind of, this has been the, the rabbit hole that I've been down recently is systems theory and understanding complex systems and how it all um, comes together. And you're, you're dealing with so many moving parts and trying to coordinate those moving parts. And really it's like, if you can't, if you miss the forest for the trees and you're saying, well, his Omega wave was terrible today. So we need to shut him down from everything. Like, can you imagine having that conversation with a sport coach on the day of a game coach? His CNS is red today. He shouldn't play. Like that's completely missing the forest for the trees. The kid's going to be amped regardless to play. He may not feel his best compared to a day where his CNS is green, but it can't just be looked at as, you know, a linear system that, Oh, Omega wave is red. Shut him down for the day. Like there's, conversations to be had. There's, you know, looking at other data points, there's, there's too many other inputs into the decision that's derived to just boil it down to one number from a data point and say, this is the decision we're making for the day. Yeah. And I, I love that you bring up the point of the game day thing because uh, a hammer thrower that I'm good friends with uh, Sean Donnelly, he had the Omega wave done uh, and had the whole system set up at the Gophers and he talked about like, he didn't look at the results. I think he said it was always a week. He would look at the results a week after and then compare it to. So it wasn't like if he, if he popped up as a red or popped up as not performing, his CNS isn't going to be up the day before a competition. Then he's like, Oh shit. Like now tomorrow's going to suck. He yeah. would, he would review it the, the week after, which I thought was an awesome thing. And if he had a bad day and it was on one of the days where his recovery wasn't great, he was able to be like, all right, that data point helps me now direct my program. And maybe I had too much volume, maybe I had too much of this, but now he's able to direct it, but it's not destroying him mentally. And it's not changing like what is coach. Cause I think it, I could weigh on the coaches as well is you have an athlete that pops up as red game day and if, if you didn't know that athlete had popped up red, you could put him out there. He, he'd probably have a pretty good game. But like you said, game day is going to be on top. He's going to be able to make it through. But you have that you have that coach bias now that, oh, that athlete's red. Like at the first time that athlete screws up or first time you have something, you're going to have that in the back of your head. Like, is that, should I play that athlete? That type of thing. Oh, no doubt. But it, again, it, it goes back to the, the complexity of what we're dealing with. Like we are dealing with 18 to 22 year olds at the most formative and, and volatile times of their life. And we can do everything right from a programming standpoint, a tactical periodization standpoint. And saw this last year with one of my athletes, they didn't eat enough protein. And so it's causing them to be super parasympathetic all the time because they were constantly trying to repair their tissues. And so again, even though everything was aligned from a programming standpoint, because they weren't eating enough protein and we, we got it remedied and it was amazing because within two days, all the value shot up to green because she was finally able to have what she needed to recover and for her body not to be in a parasympathetic, parasympathetic state uh, of trying to rebuild. But again, everything was aligned. The, the tactical periodization was right. The programming was right. But one input was changing everything. And, you know, that's where, again, we, we can't get lost in, you know, one thing because it could be something that we don't readily have control of we can tell her, and that was the conversation with the athlete. Hey, um, let's try this. Let's see if it's a protein issue. And they tried it and it worked and it made things a lot better. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, yeah, we, we can't sit there and, and freak out over, you know, one test not being right. We've got to consider the, the big picture. And again, accept that we're dealing with very, very complex systems and 18 to 22 year old athletes that are going to, bring in every crazy input they could have into the system. They're going to drink on the weekends. They're going to, you know, make poor decisions. They're going to stay up super late studying. 
controlling everything as much as you can around that might still not be enough. And so, you know, if we do right uh, on our end, we, we have to accept that there's going to be a bit of uncertainty still around what we get back from it. Cause it's, it's not Soviet Russia where we've <laughs> removed them from life and the only stressors in their lives are training and practice. They got, especially at William and Mary, they've got huge academic stress, social stressors, familial stressors, whatever else they may have manifested, you know, again, it's that whole, um, why zebras don't get ulcers. Like the hallmark of humans is that we can manifest a stress response to an event that hasn't actually occurred. <laughs> Our athletes are, are quite good at that. Like they're, they're at an academic institution for a reason and they're able to think very, very critically. Uh, that also lends itself to overthinking at times. And I think that's where a lot of our athletes can stress themselves out and put themselves in a bad place. And it's by none of our doing it as a coaching staff. I love, I love, I love the whole general overview. And I think you did a really good job of making the, the reasoning for this and just talking about how you're going to break down some of these barriers to move this field forward. One, one bit I want to, I want to kind of pivot to before we, before we go into a rapid fire round is talking about, getting paid your value. And this is something I think is, is an awesome point for you is you, you learn this skill set that I would, I don't think there's very many strength coaches out there have this skill set, have the data management skill set, have the ability to build out these Google drives. And this is something where we have a lot of young strength coaches that'll, that'll listen to this podcast uh, talking about what value can you bring to the table? What is something that you have that the other person doesn't and trying to discover these skills. Can you talk about that kind of, your thoughts on that, your kind of journey for even learning some of this stuff and how it has helped you in your career? That's a good question. I think where I've had my most growth and where the way that I view our profession stems from is a grasp of the bigger picture. And I was very fortunate to have great mentors early on that, it, you know, it's not just about the bigger bench press, the faster 40, like we are developing athletes who can express these traits in the chaos of competition. So at the time that it matters most, so it's, it's not just about getting them faster. It's about being able to express, call it game speed. So sprinting on a curvilinear path, sprinting in a fluctuated state, sprinting with an implement in hand, whatever it may be. And that's where, um, you know, I know you had mentioned the, the Instagram post that I had the other day about um, speed and then, you know, how there, there's a little bit of a, a lapse in sequencing into preseason if all you do is two-point linear sprints. Like, the, there's a, a gap that can be filled with more contextual work to better transition them into athletics. Um, but so I think being able to have it impressed to me what the bigger picture is and what the ultimate intent is, which is to win, um, you know, and subservient to that is obviously the be able to be competitive when it matters most. Um, and so understanding that bigger picture and then being able to be pulled back enough to see it, but then also dive in as needed into the, the smaller nuanced pieces of it. So I think at least a few years ago, there was a, a lot of push to, you know, find your niche as a strength and conditioning coach. Like there's people that are known for biomechanics or motor learning or data or whatever it may be. But I really think to do this, profession effectively, you have to be a, a generalist and you, you have to be able to have a bullshit detector in all these different domains to know when something's not necessarily true. Um, and then just continually advance forward a little bit more, more in each domain. And it, it's, you know, 
I couldn't necessarily go into the, the complexities of, of biomechanics or what have you, but I know enough to, to be effective and I'll keep learning more and more as I go, but I don't want to start, you know, losing the forest for the trees and miss the point that, you know, it's about driving towards better performances and in turn winning. And so I think when you, you have that lens on what it is that we're trying to do from a performance standpoint and how we can better, um, support the athletes in that nature, that's where I think the, the value of the performance realm comes into play very, very heavily, just because we do have so much contact with the athletes, um, especially in football where, you know, it's a eight month off season they're with sport or strength coaches more than they're with sport coaches. And so if we're doing things that, you know, veer them one way away from better performances, um, you know, we're, we're ultimately doing them a disservice and that's where I think the the push right now, and you know, the one that we've kind of become known for at William and Mary is the the death of the three hundreds. Um, you know, getting rid of just doing things because we've always done them, doing things that push the athletes towards better performances, and then setting the table to allow for the conversations that bring all those coactives together and synchronize them for the betterment of the athlete is where I think our our value truly comes because we all understand, and this is where. The, the conversations and the, the zoom webinars and what have you have been tremendous, but the, I think Joel Reinhardt said it best. Um, the, the conversations that are needing to be had are the ones with the sport coaches to make them aware of how complex this field is and to get them to understand that practices and, and games are the most important stimulus that the athletes get. And that there's a way that we can design them to maximize and, maximize their performances when it matters most. And so I think to, to summarize it all up, make sure that we are generalists and able to see the big picture and develop the qualities that are going to underpin successful sporting performances and then help set the table and generate the conversation that brings the entire equation together and synchronizes it and starts the conversations that ultimately need to be had. Um, you know, in line with what James has alluded to in governing dynamics and what Fergus has talked about in Game Changers. Yeah, and having the uh, the, the understanding and thought process of that general overview and kind of what the goal is at the end of the day, which is create better athletes to win, to be competitive when you need to be competitive, that allows you to develop your skill sets where they matter or continue to grow your skill sets where they matter. So let's say if 20 years ago you were a strength coach and all you were focusing on is getting your athletes bigger, faster, stronger, you probably would have never developed the, the Google sheets that you had because that wasn't your, your focus. That wasn't your goal. That wasn't your general overview. Your goal was to add, add weight to that bench press and you continuing to keep that goal, the goal in the back of your head allowed you to develop skill sets that are going to allow you to move that goal forward. Absolutely. And it's, it's funny because one of my, uh, not recent, but fairly recent reads was essentialism by Greg McKean. And so the, the way I guess I described it is really, um, you know, counterintuitive to that ideology that he advocates for, which is, you know, focus on less and going in that direction versus focusing on a lot and making a millimeter of progress in a million different directions. But again, I, I think you can pull back a little bit further from that. Like the intent is to do what leads to winning. Like that is the essential intent. And you know, obviously within that, you can get into, you know, well, you have to know about speed. You have to know about agility. You have to know about strength, conditioning, all these nutrition, all these other subsets of the field. Um, but I think if you frame it within the essential intent is to do things that lead to winning, 
it's much more focused than it might necessarily be because you're going to look for the things and you're going to look for, um, here always says it success leaves clues. So you're going to look at the people that, um, have demonstrated a track record of developing fast athletes or developing agile athletes. So it's, you know, going to look at the Sean Mizka stuff for agility development, skill acquisition. It's going to look at Tony Holler's work for speed development. It's, you know, going down any one of the, the strengths, the easy part, um, to me, because you can, as we've all found out in high school, you can do pretty much anything. You could sniff the barbell for 20 minutes and you'll add 10 pounds to your bench press. Um, but like going to those people that have defined success in those different subset fields, pulling out what, what's relevant and then fitting it back into that essential intent of what's going to drive winning. And so that's where, while it sounds like I'm just trying to push in a million different directions, like it's framed within the intent of doing things that lead to winning. Yeah. And I just finished the book range and it, it mentioned the same exact thing of, use the like specialists are needed. Like the, the Sean Mishka's the people that are so far into the rabbit hole that they know, like literally everything about that they're needed for a generalist, somebody that's leading a team to be able to grab pieces from, to be able to push again, that general goal forward. And that that's what the specialists are for to be able to grab that, that knowledge from. Absolutely. And you know, ultimately it serves what uh, my career ambitions are, which is I want to be able to be a, a high performance director at a, a power five school. And so to do that, and you know, I'm fortunate. I've got the, the quintessential model with Eric as my boss of, and you talk to him and it's like, dude, how do you know so much? Like he is pulling from everywhere and he can, he can slide in and out of vastly different conversations and have very objectively intellectual discussion in, in any of those domains. So like, while he wasn't necessarily brought up as an athletic trainer, he, he's well versed enough in, in the literature and the practices. And, you know, he knows who to go to, to answer his questions. And, but he knows, you know, usually you say people know a little bit about a lot, but Eric knows a lot about a lot. And uh, again, he's a very generalist mind, but he can delve in and out of each of those subsets and be very, very well versed. And so having that model of you've got to know and, be a gen- you got to know everything and you got to be a generalist it is where, you know, for my professional ambitions, like I've sort of modeled the way that I develop myself after that. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's a good, uh, Eric's a good person to be able to have the model off of. <laughs> Let me tell you, they say be the, the dumbest person in the room and you're in the right room. And between him and Kier, like we've had some drives because I would have to drive up to some of our games because I'd have to train either lacrosse late on Fridays or on early Saturdays or soccer or what have you. Um, so I would typically drive up to our games on Saturdays, depending on where they were at. And so then of course, rather than do the uh, bus ride back home, driving the, the car with your, your buddies. And so I've been privy to back and forth between those two guys. And it's just like, it, I don't take it for granted that it's a environment that people would love to be a, a fly on the wall just to hear the conversations. And I get to be in that environment and perpetually feel like the dumbest person in the room. And, but I've, it's, this is without a doubt the most uncomfortable I've ever been in my life in the absolute best way possible because it's forced me to continue to grow and grow at a rate that I probably wouldn't have grown anywhere else. And so to have those two is kind of, you know, what I want to aspire to, to be as a practitioner is I don't take it for granted for a second. Yeah, that's a pretty kick-ass thought to be a fly in the wall there. Yes. <laughs> and then 
whatever they pull out and it's happened a few times and one of them's asking me for my opinion. And I'm just like, huh, you want my opinion? You sure? It's just, it, it's incredibly cool, but it, you know, to, to be at that point of being able to offer opinions and insights to people of their caliber is, is awesome. And, you know, to be able to first and foremost call them friends is even better. Yeah, that's the spot. We can transition into the, the rapid fire rounds here. And, and the, the first question is, and you, you might mention it earlier, but what are kind of some of your favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? Principles by Ray Dalio has shot its way up as my favorite book. That's one that I finished and immediately said, I will be going back to this every single year. I think just from a, and even if you're not a strength coach, I think there's just universal applicability in you know, both the life principle, because everybody has a life, everybody works and whatever field you may be in, whatever your life circumstances may be, ideologies that he puts out from the principles that he's developed at Bridgewater, uh, over his time there are phenomenal. And there's a lot of them, but it's not that you, you know, as he tells you, these are the principles that he's arrived at for Bridgewater. You can take as many or as few of them as you'd like. And so I think it's where there are going to be some that are more applicable to coaches. There are going to be some that are more applicable to people in sales. There are going to be, you know, there's going to be different points that stick out from that book for different people, but it's the most all encompassing book in my opinion of how you should strive to, to live your life and approach any of the various circumstances that we may encounter in life. Um, a couple others that I really like, I really like culture code. I think the, the biggest piece that I have come to hold as in incredibly high regard from my last two years here is the, the value of people and of the culture that those people are immersed in. And, and this goes back to a bit of my experience uh, as an athlete, because again, uh, looking back, I, I can say with, with pretty um, high confidence that the way we practiced, the way we trained wasn't objectively the best but we still went from being a five and six team in 2013 to going to a national title in 2014. And the biggest differentiating factor between those two teams was there were no egos among the seniors. We, we had talent, don't get me wrong. Um, but there were no egos. People just wanted to win and people, it wasn't people worried about getting their touches or, you know, what have you, everybody was just hell bent on getting to a national championship. And, so, you know, again, it reinforces and this goes back to, um, some of this, like Alabama, everybody knows how difficult their, their training regimen was prior to, uh, their new staff getting there, but they still won because the culture of that place is so strong. And so it, it always brings me back to if you can get the culture right. And to do that, I think it's foundational to have the right people in place first and foremost, but if you can get the culture right that can mask or mitigate the effects of mistakes that are made along the way. Um, like with the lacrosse program that I was, uh, that I'm with, I know for a fact we made mistakes, but because we went at it together and because the girls knew how aligned we were, everybody had no choice but to row the boat together and steal the PJ flex line. Um, but, um, everybody had no choice but to go together and, that is what I putting aside the performance improvements, the injury reduction improvements, what have you, that is what to me ultimately set the ceiling for the success we were able to have. And 
the coolest part to me was because the the culture, I, I think this was it, but because the culture was so good and it was such a unique experience for those girls to be in such a well-aligned program when they hadn't been in years past, there were girls that after the last game were sobbing, saying it was the best year of their life. And mind you, we still had a losing record that year. But so it's like, that's the, the power of what we do and of what culture can do is that you can you know, not even reach the pinnacle of sport and make it the best year of somebody's life. And, and the way to do that is the culture that you establish. And obviously there's huge rabbit holes to go into with how that's done. And there's tons of great texts around that or, or pieces of literature around that. But that's of fundamental importance to me because it, it, I've been places where the training was incredible and the system was incredible, but the culture was not and winning didn't occur. I've been places where we did everything right and better things happened, but we still didn't reach the top. So it's like, it's this dichotomy of, you know, ultimately culture is going to be the rate limiter for the success that you achieve. And it can bring down um, teams that should be really good if it's not good. And I think one of the things that just was recently uh, reinforced to me, so I read the book tribe by um, his last name is Junger, his first name, but it's basically that with the way society is, set up these days, it, it doesn't lend itself to kind of that, that tribal culture, you know, I think native Americans where the, the strength was the pack. And, you know, you, he tells stories in, the, in this book about there were people that would leave uh, the English settlements, you know, say that they had been captured by Indians as a prisoner of war, um, been gone for months and then they get released and they go back into regular life, which is supposed to be, you know, far better than living as a native American only to have them, uh, run off into the woods and go back to being that, that tribal setting. And there, there's power in the tribe and in, you know, I feel cliche saying that some the tribe at William and Mary. Um, but we don't, have a society that lends itself to tribal experiences where everybody is working towards a greater good and there aren't egos or hierarchies. There's just, you know, effectively the question doesn't make the boat go faster and what can I do to help the boat go faster? And it's funny because in that, that book tribe, they, um, they talk about, uh, wartime countries. And, uh, so like they talk specifically about like France during the, uh, the blitzkrieg. And they all had to go into these bomb shelters underground. And as bad of a situation as that is, there, there were people that said that the sense of unity and like tribal culture and the, the working for the greater good um, that occurred in those bomb shelters, people that they didn't miss being bombed, but they missed the, the culture, if you will, that came with it and the, the sense of, groupness that came with it and so it's to me that is the most critical piece to have in place and so that's where um culture code i think was very incredibly written to at least from an individual standpoint help set the the table for generating good culture yeah and that's that's something that i feel like culture you can you can talk about a lot but once you actually experience the taste of 
maybe it is beating a team that you know you shouldn't have beat because of that culture or just where you, you're, you're watching other, like you said, like, and I think this is very powerful in sports because you're seeing the world very individually, individualized, um, not a ton of culture there, not a ton of teams, not a ton of tribes, and you see a lot of chaos happening in the world. And then you, you get to spend two to three hours with your football team, with whatever team you have, where that culture is together. And you get to feel that everybody's pulling in the same direction and there's so much less chaos. There's so much less anxiety than the outside world, but there is none of that. Absolutely. And again, that's where, you know, if you've set the, the foundation, right. And you have, to me, what I've learned from my time so far is it has to start within the staff and that'll eventually permeate to the team because initially the situation I came into with lacrosse, it was very uh, divided and because we as a coaching staff clicked so quickly and we always left the meeting room on the same page about what was going to be done and how it was going to be done. And so the girls knew that they couldn't go to one coach and get a different answer than if they went to another coach. And it took six months. Like it, we were still fighting some of the, the divide in November of my first year at William and Mary. But then we came back in January and it was just like, there was a very, clear cut, um, threshold that we hit, if you will, or like inflection that we hit towards everybody just coming together. And so again, if I think if, if you can get your staff and this is where like Dalio talks about it a lot in principles, but like having a shared model of reality is essential to that because if, um, you know, it goes back to the, uh, there's a old parable from, uh, India that like four blind men are in a town and they bring an elephant to the town center and they have the four blind men come out and one person feels a leg, another feels the side of the belly, another feels a trunk and another feels a tusk. And they all think it's something different, but none of them think it's an elephant. And so it's like removing the, the blindness or the blindfolds and being able to come to a consensus about what it is that you're dealing with. And then moving forward with that shared model, you know, as your, your anchoring point as a staff. And so when that can happen, I, I think that's, paramount to setting the standard for, you know, the culture and what it's going to be, because then it allows the conversations that you have to be that much more objectively true. And that's where, you know, if you still bring your, your dividing, your uh, differences of opinion to the table, but then ultimately it's decided this is the way we're going to go because that model of reality that everyone has is shared enough. People can leave on good terms. But again, if one person thinks the tusk is a tree branch and another person thinks the um, trunk is a snake, both people are going to think they're right when in reality, they're both missing the entire picture. That's awesome. I love, I love that. Next, next, next question as, as we move forward is, is who do you think uh, we should have on this podcast? And this is kind of the growing the network of this podcast, kind of growing the messages that we're trying to get across. And it's been a powerful question for this podcast, kind of how we got you on. Uh, who do you think a guest we should have on this podcast should be? Uh, I would say Kira for sure. You might as well complete the trifecta of Wayne and Mary <laughs> people. Everybody. All, all bias aside, I thoroughly enjoy listening to him speak just because he's so well-versed and well-read and incredibly logically thought out. And so I would say definitely him. Um, the other one would be my first mentor, which is, his name's Mike Nicklaus. Um, he's in the private sector. Um, and from very early on, it impressed to me. And again, this was one of those formative experiences for me and who I, why I am, uh, who I am as a coach today. 
but the, the big thing he always told me was never stop learning. And even like we look back and we, we laugh about the shit that he used to have me doing when I was an athlete, because we like, we both know that it was so wrong. But the thing that always stuck with me and it's why I still go back to this day. Like I've been going there since 2003, forget what your seventh grade was. Yours all blend together at this point, but it's, I think sometimes what you end up seeing with private sector facilities is it becomes a very transactional experience. You pay for a session, you go in, you get led through the session. They take pictures of you with your shirt off to post on their Instagram that you can share and that's it. Um, but what I, what they were able to build at acceleration was a culture and it it was very blue collar, but it was blue collar in an intelligent way. And we knew there were going to be days that we got after it, but we knew that they were always doing what was in our best interest as athletes and that they cared about us as people and didn't necessarily care about the money. And he's, uh, he's the most humble person in the world when it comes to his craft, but his NFL combine training results are absolutely stupid in how good they are. And it's unfortunate because he, they've been close to having some really big time prospects train with them. But of course the, you know, agent wants to send them to the place they have to deal with. And then it doesn't quite go as well, but he's got, in my opinion, he's got that niche completely carved out and, does it so incredibly well and I'll brag for him cause he won't, he won't brag on himself, but his lifetime results on all of the combine tests are absolutely insane. And the second they get a, like a truly big time, like a first or second rounder type guy that, that trains with them and, and does it right, because we do have a pretty good crop of athletes that um, come through there that end up going to big schools and have the relationship with him and want to train with him, but then they just get pulled away by their agent. Um, but I think he's just, it's a gold mine waiting to be tapped because as soon as like they get one big time first or second round dude, that just blows people away at the combine. Um, I, I think he'll really take off. But, um, again, from the, the cultural side of it, and then also from the, the practitioner side of it, uh, one of the best that I, I've met in my experiences. Well, I'll have to check him out. That'd be our first, uh, combine guy that dived down the rabbit hole, which, uh, uh I'll, I'll make sure not to let him be pigeonholed into being a combine guy. Cause he works with a ton of athletes as well. Um, he, he's really, really good with, uh, soccer and then baseball as well. Football's of course a little bit easier. You get a little bit more complex with sports like baseball and soccer. Um, but definitely just incredibly global mind for, for all sports, but he's definitely, I would say that the big strength for him is what he does with combine training. Awesome. We'll check it out. Next, next question. And you, you uh, alluded on this a little bit earlier, but what's kind of next for you? What's that next? Like maybe it's a one year or five year goal for you to take that next step forward. Admittedly, I think it's this fall in navigating the reintegration into sport. Uh, I think there's very, and again, I'm fortunate because Eric and Kier are spearheading the policies that are going to be in place that are going to help um, drive decisions that are made in the right direction so that we don't uh, put ourselves in a position of having a significant exertional illness or significant injury, but there's still going to be difficult conversations to be had. And so I I think there's a, it's going to be, I know it's going to be uncomfortable, but it, again, being uncomfortable is is where you grow. And that's why I've grown as much as I have in the last, what was it? Almost two years now of working at William and Mary is because I've never, been able to necessarily sit back and just have a sigh of relief moment because it's, we're constantly trying to 
push and do more and, and aspire to, to be at this level that, you know, we envision the, the university being at. And so I think initially it's just, it's making sure to, you know, in the essence of the quote, be big time where I'm at and make sure that I'm well equipped and well versed to have those difficult conversations and, and stand true to the, the convictions of the way that we're going to do it. I think that's the the immediate next step for me. And, you know, beyond that, I, I really don't like to look too far down. So I think that is where you start missing where you're at and stop necessarily focusing on doing a really, really great job where you're at. And so whenever the opportunity comes, it, it'll come. But I have 190 athletes that are, that are counting on me to, to be at my absolute best and do my absolute best by them uh, in how I prepare them. So. I'll focus on that. And then when opportunities present themselves, they present themselves. But, you know, as far as a long-term focus, I at least know the destination is for me being a high performance director at a power five university where that, where the stops are in between. I don't know. And I don't necessarily care to try and figure it out. I'm just going to let life happen as it, it does. Because if you would have told me that life would take me to Lexington, Kentucky, and then Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then Williamsburg, Virginia, in the first five years after my schooling's finished, I would have probably called bullshit on it, but here I am. And I am who I am because of those experiences. And so letting life happen as it does, and just being in the moment of where I'm at is how I'm kind of looking at next steps for me. That's a kick-ass answer. Be big time where you're at. That's, that's, that's advice. I think a lot of, a lot of young coaches and a lot of everybody in any field could take. So I love Yes. I mean, the reality is you don't get your choice of where you want to go. This isn't, like most fields where you can just say, Oh, I want to go work in Miami. Like, no, you're picking up and moving to Williamsburg, Virginia, because that's where the job is. And so it's trying to plot it out is, is I think you're going to disappoint yourself and you, you'd much rather just knock it out of the park where you're at and have people that come calling as a result versus trying to force it to happen because you want to work in Chicago or Miami or Texas, whatever it may be. Um, so I, and it's, it's, I guess it's stoic, if you will, to just, you know, accept that you can't necessarily, you can't necessarily control your, your destiny or what happens to you, but you can control like how you respond and what you do on a day-to-day basis. So it's, I'd far rather focus on things that I can control and whatever happens as a result of that, I'll deal with it when I get to it. Yeah, exactly. Next question. And this is one of my favorite of the podcast, but when all this dominating, of the day-to-day is over when all this coaching is over when, when you reach that pinnacle of success is all over, what do you kind of want your legacy to be? What do you want them to say you accomplished during this time? What do you want them to say you were? So I gave a lot of thought to this question when I saw it, because I was like, I never really broad scale considered what it is that I'd want to be remembered for. And I don't necessarily know that I, I want to be remembered for anything. I, I think I would so I guess if I had to summarize it, the way I wrote it was that I just want to play a supporting role to an experience that kids would want to do all over again. Uh, I think collegiate athletics is incredibly special and there's, you know, it affords you the opportunity to, to go places you might otherwise not go to, um, you know, play in games that mean a whole lot, um, you know, to that group of people to, instantly have a locker room full of lifelong friends and uh, in line with our conversation, a a tribe of people that are working towards a common purpose. Like that is an experience that there, I'm sure there's been plenty of kids that have just had it ruined because of the way that they were 
treated, um, the way that they were trained that maybe resulted in, in injury or setbacks, whatever it may be. Um, so I think if, if you had to call it a, a legacy, if you will, I would, I would much rather just play my part as a support, supporting role. And that lends itself to an experience that kids would say, I wish I could do that all over again. And I think subset to that would be building lifelong relationships with the athletes that I work with to where if I'm in a city that they happen to be in after college, they want to grab lunch and catch up because they valued what they did when they were with me. And I think a lot of what we are looking to do as coaches is to build confidence and, you know, it gets into the kind of the whole mental toughness discussion, if you will, but confidence is knowing that you have the ability to meet the demands of the task in front of you. And that comes in physical forms and it comes in mental forms. And what we're trying to do as performance coaches is provide the opportunity for the cultivation of those physical skill sets that lend themselves to athletes knowing that they're ready to, to play and to compete. And, you know, from, on a very explicit level, it, it's demonstrated when athletes hit PRs. So if they, you know, have a bigger bench press or they get faster. Um, so, you know, obviously earlier I said, it, it's not just about that, but that you want to be able to demonstrate at a very, you know, um, micro level as performance coach, you want to demonstrate that you can actually improve athletic qualities. So it, it is a piece of the equation. It's not the whole aim though. Um, but so with athletes, like if they can see they're getting better because they're 40 times going down, their vert's going up, their bench or squats getting bigger. Um, and then through implicit means as well, like the, the most important KPI for, for me is what athletes feel when they're competing. So if an athlete comes to me and says, that's the most fit I've ever felt in a game, or I feel really fast out there, or I hear a teammate tell them, dude, you look really fast. Like those evaluations and those perceptions of how they're developing are going to build their confidence to meet those demands. And so I'd much rather they know they're improved and they know they're more capable of meeting those demands. Um, and have those, um, kind of KPIs, if you will, be what lays the, the foundation for the relationship that we have that they know that when they were with me, they improved as a result. And, you know, to an extent, I don't want to say it's about having fun, but it shouldn't be this, you dread going into the gym. I think a lot of that gets created because it just becomes, you know, a CrossFit session of how much work can we do in an hour and kids end up being averse to the gym for the rest of their life because they got just completely beat down. But if you pull back, do a little bit less and make the work very, very intentional, kids will work a lot harder. And I think that the coolest piece for, for me of my time so far um, has been girls saying that they, they realize that training doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be something that they dread, that they can actually be made better by it and build confidence as the result of it. And yeah, there, there was a lot of, power when uh, a few of the girls told me that at one point, because it's like, you know, we're, we're shaping um, mentalities towards something that, that's beneficial for life in how we work with these athletes. And if all we're doing is crushing on because we think we need to do as much work as possible and that the weight room is the only thing that matters. Um, you know, these kids kind of like I left college are may leave and say, I'll never touch a weight again. And obviously, you know, with the field I work in, that's not been true. But, you know, I would much rather 
kids leave having an experience that they would have done all over again and that they have more confidence in themselves physically and mentally than when they came into me as a freshman athlete. And, um, you know, they enjoy physical activity more as a result because they realize what it can do for their body, whether it's, you know, from a performance standpoint or obviously after, um, school, they're probably more so looking for the, the aesthetic standpoint. Um, and then just, you know, to have lifelong relationships with the athletes that, you know, they valued the interactions we had and, and the, um, time that we spent together working towards this common goal and that, you know, when they graduate and, and walk out the doors there, it's not the last time that they, they want to see me or catch up. Oh, that's awesome. Last, last question of the podcast. And this is, this is for the person that has, has yet to make that jump. Maybe they, maybe they're thinking about going to that conference, but they haven't done it yet. Maybe they're thinking about approaching that next person, but they, they're still kind of in that Valley. They're, they're still, they haven't reached that mountain. They haven't accomplished much and they feel kind of stuck in that Valley. What's kind of your billboard message for that person to take that step? I am going to borrow from Sam Gardner's presentation at CBAPS last year. Uh, he's, I believe, head of the U.S. Paralympic. Um, I forget which event specifically, um, but he's one of the strength coaches from the Paralympics. And his ending slide said, there are people who would love to have your bad days. And very timely, I was listening to uh, Naval Ravikant's podcast with Joe Rogan today. And one of the things he said was, um, you know, happiness is a choice. And so I, I firmly think that a lot of, you know, whether you're, you're in a rut or you're, you're struggling in some way, you can either choose to, to focus on that rut or you can see the, the opportunity that's in it. So if you get rejected by a position you applied to, I always followed up when I uh, didn't get moved on in uh, selection processes. I followed up to ask what I could have done better. And most of the time, and I think this is unfortunate because I think, um, there's a little bit of say due diligence to pay it forward to the next generation of coaches and at least give feedback if it's solicited. Um, but I would email and just ask, you know, what could have improved, have improved my application. And so then there's an opportunity for, for learning there, you know, via negative knowledge, like, uh, Tala talks about, so you can learn, okay, well, this didn't work. So let me, you know, if it's a, if it's a knowledge set that you didn't demonstrate sufficiently in an interview, something to work on. If it's not having enough experience, then okay, let me go find an internship that's easy enough to have just so I have another experience to list on my resume. But I think always keeping the perspective that there, there's always somebody that, that has it worse than you um, it, it is, and would love to have your bad day. So if you got three rejection letters that day, guess what? There's probably somebody that got five or six. And um, you know, just always keeping that, that perspective on it. Like, and, and that's what I think has really made it like, you know, one of the questions that you had on here was, um, you know, talking about mindset or, or habits or things that I did to, to push through. And admittedly, like I, I haven't had a, a day where I've woken up and been like, I don't want to go to work. Like I have truly, truly enjoyed every single day, even the ones that are 15 hours long and you're just running a gold's gym of group after group after group. Like there's never been a day that I've woken up and said, I really don't want to go to work. And I'm fortunate in that regard. Um, and that even on, you know, and that's where I remind myself, like even on the days that we're getting just reamed with groups or, um, something goes wrong. Like there are people that would love for that bad day to be their bad day. And so like keeping it in perspective and just realizing that there's a silver lining and there's an opportunity to learn from, 
uh, failures or, you know, whatever it may be that that's causing, um, struggle in your life. And so I think if you reframe it, there's value in choosing to reframe it and choosing to see it in a more optimistic light. Hell yeah. That's a, that's a kick-ass mindset to end the podcast. Every year we, uh, every year I read the obstacles away. And it started when I was a, a freshman on the football team that I coach now. And every, it was the first time experiencing that mindset of, something in your way, like that just because it's there, just because you're having a bad day, like that doesn't mean it's, it's a bad thing. Like there's, there, there's a way to take advantage of this. There's a way to grow from that opportunity and there's a way to push forward. And I, I love Absolutely. that. I love that mindset. Absolutely. And coach, this was, this was awesome. We crushed this podcast. We went deep into some rabbit holes and then we got some freaking awesome philosophy out of this. So thank you for being on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Boom. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.